0: Hello everyone and welcome to Mental Health Much. My name is Vincent and I'm a French-Canadian psychotherapist living in Toronto. As a therapist, I'm fascinated by anything that has to do with mental health. So on this podcast, I invite friends and colleagues over to talk about it. Being a gay man, I'm obviously more interested in anything queer-related, as well as topics that are pro-feminist, pro-trans and anti-racist. This week, I'm meeting with my friend and my colleague, Avesta, to discuss... The Struggles of Having ADHD While Living in an Ableist World. Hi, Avesta.
1: Hello, Vincent. How are you?
0: I'm good. Thank you for asking. Thank you for coming on my podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Big topic today, ADHD. I'll probably have more than one episode talking about this topic in the future, but you're the first person breaking the ice and talking about it.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's really great to be here. And yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of rambling involved with ADHD and going off topic. So I think you might need more than one episode.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. As I said, we work in the same field. You've been a little bit more in the research side, and now you are transferring to the... Uh, therapist one-on-one counseling side so that's exciting <laughs> coming into the dark side or is the research the dark side i'm not sure
1: i would say academia is the darker side <laughs> than practical work some folks really enjoy that environment but yeah it's gonna be good to take a step towards practical work yeah
0: yeah <laughs> Looking back, I think we can agree. Maybe academia is the dark side.
1: It's the dark side of enlightenment.
0: <laughs> and we'll have more time to talk about it. But we're talking about an ableist world like academia is very ableist. But not, let's not spoil the whole conversation and start with the beginning. Avesta, for people who don't know you at all, can you tell us a few more words about who you are?
1: Yeah, sure. I'm Avesta. I am. I, I've had. Well, let's start with the mental health part. Uh, I have struggled with ADHD and depression and anxiety since I was a young child. Um, and I didn't really get diagnosed with ADHD until I was in my second year of university, where I was studying psychology and I realized that wow this this I can relate. Nothing is <laughs> nothing has described my situation better than this. So I studied psychology and I have worked in research labs and clinical psychology. And I also am an artist. I like to paint. I work with different mediums. Uh, I really like abstract art and, and cubism. And I also love, you know, electronic deep house techno music so that's, oh, <laughs> that's do I mean, you
0: combine those two do you listen to that music while painting uh, cubism paints <laughs>
1: sometimes sometimes i like to make time lapses with the music so it kind of yeah i i like to mix it but they're they're very different worlds so art research and rave <laughs> music so <laughs> yeah i try to combine them when i can <laughs>
0: that's really nice and you've answered a little bit of the question but what is your relationship with mental health so you said you struggle as a kid and it took you literally like self-advocacy and learning for yourself in order to be able to have a diagnosis that fits so how has that changed how was your relationship with mental health through the time and ages and years
1: i was seeing psychiatrists different psychiatrists ever since I was nine years old. I'm almost 27 now. And I'm really grateful because my mom was a huge advocate for it. And as soon as she saw the struggles, she said, okay, you're going to see someone, which I am grateful for now. And, you know, seeing many therapists and psychiatrists throughout the years, they never figured out that I had ADHD, even though I was really struggling in school. Mm -hmm. I was never good at school until I got medicated. <laughs> um, and, well, it was kind of self-advocacy, but also I was studying for a stats exam, and one of my friends, I guess, I, I do not recommend this, by the way, and let me know if this should be off the record. <laughs> but my friend...
0: Everything is fine. <laughs> okay,
1: okay. My friend that had a Adderall prescription, I told him that I was struggling, and he's like, well, like, you know, this is... Helpful. A lot of people use it to study. Like, you want to try it? And I took it again. Please, no one take medication that you're not prescribed. (laughs) (laughs) And it felt like I was normal. Like, I mean, I, I didn't really have a point of reference to compare it to, but I could read a page without getting distracted. I could read for hours without feeling the need to run away or fall asleep on my textbook, which happened a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I really had to push. I really, really had to push to get a diagnosis because a lot of practitioners, they're hesitant to prescribe stimulants because you know they're like, okay, this person is a college student, so on and so forth. So yeah, it really took a lot of pushing on my own end. And like you said, self-advocacy to kind of prove... my struggle uh, with my executive functioning and ability to focus and it's not just ability to focus but everything that encompasses ADHD.
0: And may I ask what kind of quote-unquote problems as a nine-year-old was your mother seeing like how did it manifest for you at that young age?
1: That's a really good question I was always struggling with school. Okay. So there was always that was a, always a conversation.
0: Already the academia
1: It had already failed me. <laughs> <laughs> the school system had already failed me. And I would run away from my homework and and there's a significant emotional component to ADHD, which is the impaired ability to regulate your emotions. So that was I think one of the main issues that my mom saw and just, I was unable to regulate my emotions. I would either be really irritable or just really excited or really angry, you know, just all the emotions that you can experience, but not in a regulated, controlled fashion. I would just like get really angry easily, really irritable. And then the lack of focus and we actually had to move. And this move was quite significant with a lot of culture shock. And when we moved, I started showing the symptoms of depression and anxiety. And I was just worried about things that little kids don't typically worry about. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, she saw the signs and it does run quite strongly in her family, depression and anxiety. So she was kind of no stranger to it so she thought that i needed help and i'm really glad that she took me because that was the first step to destigmatize when it when it starts as a child at least for me that was my experience so
0: i'm not an expert on diagnosis and the dsm but i know for kids i don't think they can diagnose adhd for kids i think for kids they're like two one size fits all catchphrase diagnoses that exist, and uh, they try to like kids in one of those two categories. You can correct me if I'm wrong, or maybe you don't know, maybe at home, you know, and you're saying, no, Vincent, you're absolutely wrong. But the way I remember it is that for kids, there are no clear diagnosis that exists.
1: I'm not sure about the DSM, but the place that I lived at the time, I don't know if they were that huge on stimulants. And I guess the one thing in ADHD, especially in kids, is that there is a gap in the level of Diagnosis for kids and the gap includes gender. Right. In a binary sense, girls tend to be underdiagnosed and boys tend to be, well, I don't know if they're overdiagnosed, but girls are underdiagnosed with ADHD.
0: Mm-hmm. And it makes sense that the gender would be already so important, like diagnosing young girls with things that are more in the realm of depression. Than in the realm of hyperactivity and ADHD?
1: A lot of it, I think, has to do with socialization. And I mean, the literature shows that generally, girls tend to display more inattentive symptoms. So in ADHD, according to the DSM, there are three subtypes, I guess. There's inattentive, hyperactive, and combined. So in boys, I guess, because there was focus on hyperactivity it's kind of easier to catch but in girls a lot of the symptoms manifest in irritability lack of organization emotion regulation stuff like that but yeah there's definitely a difference generally in how girls and boys uh, present their symptoms again like i don't know if there's research on non-binary folks but in a binary sense this is how they yeah
0: yeah, I'm assuming the DSM is still very based on the binary.
1: Yes, <laughs> <Gender>? <laughs> very categorical. Yes,
0: <laughs> sometimes we have to work with that tool, uh, unfortunately. Before we take the first break, we've talked a little bit about it, but what made you decide to, when I invited you on this show to talk about this specific issue?
1: Well, the one thing is that I think at that specific moment,
0: I was really
1: struggling <laughs> with ADHD and the ableist institution of academia. And I have been working with a group of folks for disability advocacy. And I was presenting at a conference and I realized how inaccessible the conference was. And this is a psychology conference. It's like, Mm -hmm. how is it inaccessible? I mean, it's not that surprising, but I was just kind of in, in the midst of just feeling really frustrated with both my ADHD my mental illness and also the world because it's not built for us it's not built for us to thrive and by us I mean neurodiverse folks
0: this makes a lot of sense and being in the middle of a psychology class or conference and realizing that even our field is ableist and not accessible yeah you're right it should not be surprising but it's still pinches and hurts a little bit but hopefully things are going to change with things like my podcast
1: (laughs) i sure hope so if one person in power (laughs) listens which
0: unfortunately is not me or fortunately i don't think i want that at all for myself (laughs) yeah (laughs) let's take a short break and uh, we'll be right back to really discuss adhd and ableism back we are talking about ADHD and Avesta I think the best place to start our conversation about ADHD is can you explain to our audience who may not be as familiar what is ADHD
1: yeah so ADHD stands for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder it is a neurodevelopmental disorder, which is just fancy wording for, it has to do with your brain development. Uh, So there's some sort of disruption in your brain development for ADHD. It involves the prefrontal cortex. So the front part of your brain that is responsible for executive functioning. So planning, organization, attention, uh, impulse control, So kind of like the higher functions of the brain, planning, decision-making, stuff like that. And it comprises of three subtypes. So like I mentioned, inattentive, hyperactive, and combined. And it's not just inattention. That is one of the big issues.
0: Yeah, inattention is kind of when I close my eyes and I don't think too deep. I think about ADHD as someone who just cannot focus on something. That's like my baseline understanding of what ADHD is. But obviously, it's more complex than that.
1: I mean, that is definitely one thing that is one of my biggest struggles is inattention, but also planning, getting started on a task, you know, um, finishing the task. (laughs) A lot of folks with ADHD start all these different projects and they never get done (laughs) or... I mean, I'm, I can speak for myself, but I, the ADHD folks that I have met have the same struggle. The impulsivity is huge.
0: And that's because people are craving like dopamine and stimulation. Do I understand that correctly?
1: Yes. So when you have ADHD, the medical model argues that there's a lack of dopamine production in your prefrontal cortex and dopamine is the neurotransmitter responsible for reward yeah so when you eat something you like you feel you get a boost of dopamine when you have sex you feel dopamine just anything that is kind of reward based and so when you lack this reward or lack this dopamine you will seek different sources of it so it can be gaming It can be social media, it can be drugs, it can be impulsive shopping, just anything that will give you a little boost of what you're missing, essentially. So, yeah, absolutely. We crave stimulation, and with stimulant medication, with my stimulant medication, it helps me kind of regulate everything because it boosts the dopamine in my brain. I don't know if that's exactly how it works, I'm just comparing it to some antidepressants that like block the reuptake. So yeah, basically it, it it is a lack of dopamine and that's why we love stimulation. But also there's the psychosocial side of it, which Dr. Gabor Maté has a great book on this. It's called Scattered Minds. And he argues that ADHD is not only a result of, you know, your brain's normal development, but it's also when you're kind of raised like your early childhood environment can be chaotic. I haven't fully read the book yet. Again, I've so many books on my bookshelf that are just like half-read.
0: <laughs> typical ADHD. You know, so
1: typical. development
0: buying so many books and then just reading the beginning.
1: Yes, yes. That is that is me. <laughs> and yeah, he he argues that there is a, a, a very strong psychosocial element to it that is left out of the medical kind of neurodevelopmental model. And we do know that your brain's development is affected by your experiences. So this isn't really a surprise, but he argues that it is an exposure to kind of some sort of chaos or instability or, yeah, I don't want to kind of quote him. Right. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a great book and it, and it discusses kind of like the psychosocial elements that go into ADHD as well.
0: And that's the eternal debate of nature versus nurture, which is interesting, but also dangerous, because then do parents need to blame themselves for having a neurodiverse or neuroatypical kid or not?
1: Yeah, I mean, my intention is not to blame any parent. (laughs) No, yeah. And Gabor Mate makes it very clear that this is not... We can get into the topic of intergenerational trauma and how our parents had to deal with their own things and and their parents had to deal and it just gets passed down, right? So it's really not anyone's fault. (laughs) I mean, parents can do a lot to help support their kids when they're neurodiverse, to help their kids learn certain strategies and implement plans and and tools and other forms of support that can help their kids thrive but really I think parents most parents are doing the best that they can and it it wouldn't be fair to kind of blame them and nature and nurture we know that they interact yeah it's not one or the other it's just kind of an interaction between those two and it's really hard to tease them apart
0: it's really nice what you say that Maybe nurture had some kind of effect, but then what a parent does with a kid who has ADHD is way more important than to understand, like, did they cause it or blah, blah, blah. No, once you realize that your kid may have ADHD, then what you do in the future is way more important than the things you may or may not have done in the past. There's a quote. Unfortunately, I can't remember who said that quote, but I'll need to find it again. I remember where I read it. It says in the debate between nature and nurture, it's almost the same thing as asking of a rectangle, is it the length or the height that makes it a rectangle?
1: But that's so interesting. I've never heard that before.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of true, right? Is it the length or the height that makes something a rectangle? It's both. They're both. And then the nature versus nurture, it's both.
1: I don't think it's nature versus nurture. I think it's nature and nurture. Yeah. You can't really tease them apart if your experiences affect literally your DNA.
0: One other concept with ADHD that I find interesting is that it often comes with other diagnosis. Like it rarely necessarily comes alone either because there are people who are wrongly diagnosed this, or just because the tension that it can create, especially at a young age, can create other things like depression eating disorder, anxiety. What can you tell us about this?
1: ADHD, like many other disorders, is usually not only found by itself. It's usually comorbid, which again, comorbid is just fancy wording for saying it occurs with other disorders, uh, with depression, anxiety, eating disorders, substance use disorders, OCD probably. But I think specifically people that have ADHD, with the depression and anxiety, it kind of creates a feedback loop. So for my personal experience, my parents always said, oh, you're so smart, like you can do anything that you want. And then when I go to school, why am I doing so terribly in school? Why am I failing math in grade eight, you know? So there's kind of that. And then there's the structure of academia or schooling or or whatever you want to call it. That isn't really built for people like me. Mm -hmm. And the kids that have ADHD, they see that they can't thrive in those environments. And then it goes to influence their sense of self-worth, their fear of not being able to do well enough, and the feeling of, of failure that they might experience with not doing good in school. So that just kind of feeds into itself, right? You can't focus in class. You can't do your homework. And then your teacher gives you bad feedback, or your professor gives you bad feedback, and your parents are upset with you. Like it just, it all works together to create a, a disaster. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's a good word for it. Yeah.
1: A, a mental health disaster that you're just constantly thinking, okay, well, if I'm smart, then why can I do this? Like, why can't I finish this? Why can't I <laughs> complete a task?
0: And school is so so much at the center of who we are as kids it's not like kids would have school and then they would have different outlets to prove their worth like it's school and even often like sports and recreation and art they're included within the school system so it doesn't really leave a lot of space for people who are not thriving at school to find places and ways that they can thrive because school is offered one way. It's been offered the one way. And then there are people who are defending the school system, like the old guard. (laughs) I don't understand why we should change the schools. Like I worked hard and I made it in the school system and kids these days don't work hard. And and (laughs) it's just like this old way of thinking about education that works well for certain types of people and personality, but really leaves everyone else on the side.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, going back to nature versus nurture, it's like when you have a child and the child is constantly stimulated, either by a phone or a TV or, you know, these things. I was reading a paper that was basically saying that neurotypical people's brains, so people that don't have, you know, ADHD or autism, When they use Instagram, the more time they spend on Instagram, the more their brain pattern activity or some sort of thing resembles like ADHD patterns. Okay. So when those people like the gatekeepers of academia and like this school system, when they kind of say these things, they don't really consider the the context of like, what has changed in our society like this TED talk I was watching was like people that had ADHD in ancient times we were like the superheroes like we would be running and like be able to like focus on like a million things at a time and we would have that attentional ability to focus on multiple things at the same time but Mm -hmm. bring that brain into the modern world like we're not meant to sit for 8 hours a day and like stare at a screen or stare at a teacher speaking. Yeah. We're just not meant to do that, but it this is how this the schooling system is. So, I guess so many people are like, "Oh, ADHD is a is a lazy disorder or this or that." And it's like you have to compare everything within its own time and social context, we can get little boosts of stimulation from everywhere and our attention is constantly being pulled in a million different directions. So when you're kind of exposed to that as a child, when your brain development is at its prime, how do you expect that brain is going to work as an adult? I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to make any like causal <laughs> claims, but I mean, it's something to think about
0: you said there's always been people in ADHD and you're right, but who wrote those school rules and who wrote history? Probably not people living with ADHD. So they just are not represented. I love that you say your brain is not made for sitting for eight hours in a classroom. And that should be okay. I think the school system, nobody except maybe the people who were always in the top 10% good students would say that like grading people and giving notes out of 100 and then they're like <laughs> comparing notes with the with the average of the class was something that was useful for them. So except those people who were actually the top tier <laughs> of the class.
1: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, those are the people the world is built for a neurotypical brain. And by neurotypical, I I mean this in the sense that people that don't have mental illness, not just neurodevelopmental stuff, those people are making the decisions. It's never someone that maybe never gets to get to that point of decision-making because of the struggles, you know.
0: Or history writing.
1: Exactly. History writing. And this is like a fun fact. Our brains actually, the prefrontal cortex evolved because of persistence running basically we had to run for our lives or run to get food <laughs> back in the old days so we had to run and so because we had to run for long distances to either get food or run away from the bear the front parts of our brains developed into all these higher order executive functioning if that's how our brains evolved how many years have we kind of been in this modern system like if it took millions of years for our brains to evolve to that point, and we kind of have the system, what, for a few centuries?
0: Yeah, barely, yeah.
1: Barely, right? Our brains have literally have not had time to catch up to the way that the world is right now. Like, our brains are just like, what, what is happening, you know? <laughs> it just hasn't had time to evolve because it takes time for evolution to happen.
0: yeah. Our poor brains are so ill-equipped to process the amount of information and data that we get and put it on a daily basis. It's kind of scary when you think about it. Yeah. Obviously, I'm assuming ADHD, like everything, comes on a spectrum, so it's not binary, it's not ADHD or not. It's (laughs) probably a spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering. In all the way that you've been talking, do you find that there's a link between ADHD and uh, addiction?
1: Definitely. I mean, I don't know that the substance use. People with ADHD also have some sort of substance use. It goes back to the stimulation
0: seeking. Yeah, that's why I brought it up. It, It would make sense. If you seek dopamine, you will be seeking substances.
1: Absolutely. And also because ADHD tends to occur with things like depression, anxiety. Also, I think anything that is habit forming or addictive, um, gambling, shopping, achievement.
0: It's interesting, too. I've never thought about that before. But those habits are also all fairly quick, right? They're not a long Commitment. So smoking a cigarette is not a long commitment. Shopping is not a long commitment. So it's something that you can start and finish quite easily. Is that is that linked?
1: That's a great point. Yeah. So these are just quick ways that you can get dopamine essentially. A lot of the struggles that people with ADHD face. And again, like I don't want to talk about everyone, but personally is trying to work on long term goals. And those can be improved with strategies and how far you are along your healing journey. But yeah, just um, something that I struggle with is delayed gratification.
0: Tell us more about that.
1: (laughs) So it's kind of like that marshmallow study they did where they put the marshmallow and they tell the kid, okay, like if I'm gonna go, but if you wait, and not eat the marshmallow, I'm going to come back and you'll get a second marshmallow and then you can have both. And then they found that it was a longitudinal study and they found the kids that actually waited and they could delay their gratification. They tend to do better in their life, like in their career, because they could delay the gratification and get more reward if they wait. So I would have probably been the kid that would have like had the marshmallow and be like, I want it now. (laughs) So yeah, that is something hard um, to delay gratification and the immediate kind of gratification with, with dopamine and substances and stuff like that. Those are definitely related. And again, addiction by definition is you know something that you keep doing regardless of it having harmful consequences in your life. You keep wanting that sense of reward even though it's ruining your lungs or it's ruining your brain or... It's ruining your relationships or whatever it is. So yeah, it's definitely linked to immediate kind of quick sources of dopamine. At least for me, it has been.
0: I'm curious hearing you talk. I think this is an expression like, how do you eat a bear? Like one mouthful at a time. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I don't. I don't, I don't like, am I creating this in my brain? Sometimes I do that. Anyway. That's
1: such a Canadian thing. <laughs> how do you eat a bear? <laughs>
0: I don't know. I just... Maybe it's a cow.
1: That's so funny.
0: I don't know. I like the idea of eating a bear better. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, like, is it frustrating to have maybe neurotypical people telling you, like, do a project. It's just one step at a time. Like, to climb on top of the mountain, it's one step at a time. And in a way, they're right because that's how you do it. But is there a, like... <laughs> I see your face right now at, at home. You cannot see uh, <laughs> like the eye roll that just happened when I was saying that. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, one step at a time is actually something that has really helped me. I don't know how I feel about other people telling me to take it one step at a time. Because like you have, how are you supposed to take one step at a time when your brain is taking like 20 steps? In different time zones, you know, (laughs) like it's just I don't know, I think it's really hard for people that don't have it to, to know, like, yeah, the ADHD thing is just it's really hard for people to grasp it when people are like, oh, well, I can't focus or. Just get a planner or just... Just
0: get a planner. <laughs> uh, but like, it's like it's not bad advice. Like, I love making lists of things to do. It's really helping me in my life. But also, and I've said that to other people, even as a therapist, like, oh, have you considered making a list? But also, like, it's the worst, but it works at the same time.
1: I love making lists. And um, the problem... <laughs> starts where you spend more time making lists and planning than actually doing the thing.
0: (laughs) That makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, I love my planner. I love making lists. I love making to-do lists. And when I was a kid, my dad always said, oh, you know, like, write a schedule (laughs) as if I can work with a schedule. And every time I made that schedule, it always failed. I don't think it's ever a good idea to give anyone with mental illness unsolicited advice, (laughs) 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 tell them to smile more or like get a planner. It's just like not going to work out.
0: That's interesting. It's the, you saying you spend a lot of time making the list. It's the whole concept of like motion versus action. Like let's say I want to go to the gym and then I would spend a lot of time researching gym trainers, reading about the good gym food, looking at what's the best gym that I could go to finding the perfect app buying clothes and then all of this time i feel like i'm achieving something but then i've yet (laughs) to go to the gym yet so is that a strategy that (laughs) that's helpful to avoid taking action
1: that happens so much one thing that i've found that has helped is i really love filling boxes well not in the societal sense (laughs) (laughs) But in just like a task sense, I found when I have a box like on my calendar or like my to-do list, I really like the feeling of just like filling it out. So when I see that box, I'm like, okay, like I need to fill this, but it can't be too many boxes or else I'll get overwhelmed.
0: Right. So it's the right amount of boxes.
1: (laughs) Just the right amount of boxes. But I mean, even like the box approach doesn't always work. I mean, it really depends. And one thing that I've learned recently, because when you struggle so much throughout your life with bad grades. And like you said, that is your whole world as a student, as, as, a, as a child going to school. Like your grades become the way that you evaluate yourself and how capable you are. And for the longest time, you know, I did terrible in school. And then finally, I got medicated and I started getting A's. And that felt really good. So I just kept like pushing myself and pushing and pushing And just, like, okay, I need to get an A. Like, at any cost, like, I will get an A. And, yeah, I did really well in university, like, after getting treatment. But at the same time, it got me to a point where I was just, like, trying to do well at any cost. And I think for something that is really important for people that struggle with mental illness or ADHD or any sort of impairment is to, like, work with yourself, not against yourself. because. I don't think anything is is worth having a very intense breakdown and then not knowing how to recover from it. So that's one thing I learned is to really find something that works for you and not trying to fit in into the neurotypical way of doing things because I don't know, it's, it's exhausting.
0: Also, very interestingly, you finding that tool, which was medication that has helped you then almost created another level of problem where your perfectionist voice came and just almost took that beautiful thing that happened to you and then sort of like shit all over it. Sorry for my language.
1: No, absolutely. And like perfectionism is also something that I really struggle with. And of course, when you have this kind of conflict your whole life, this internal conflict where you're like, okay, I'm smart, but why can't I do this? It damages your sense of self-worth and your self-esteem and all that. And now, finally, you can function almost normally. Well, I say normally in quotes. And now, okay, now that I have this tool, I can do anything. And then you push and push and push. It got to a point where it was really bad. Like, I was just like taking Adderall in the day, drinking like 12 coffees, chain smoking. (laughs) And then at night, because I couldn't sleep and I was so wired, I would take like some sort of sleep medication to pass out Mm -hmm. which was terrible like that is no way of living (laughs) I mean this long term but I've survived but you know
0: but I'm guessing because your grade got better a lot of people were assuming you were quote-unquote better at life or healthier where all of these things are the opposite of health but we define health in such weird ways
1: yeah just going back to like the concept of ableism I used to tell myself, "Oh, like I'm high functioning, I'm this and that." And then I got to a point where, I'm like, wow, like high functioning is such a problematic term. Why is that a good thing? Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, it's it's great to be able to function, but I kind of wore that as like a badge of honor, like I won at ADHD. But it's like, no, <laughs> at what cost? You know, it you, you chain smoking, like, no, it was it was no way to live. And it's a constant struggle because you want to do well, but at the same time, if like your brain is it's like, "Please make more dopamine so I can function." You really have to work with it, And I think working against it backfires. If you really, really try to fit into this structure that you have no place in, it can be draining, and, and that's what happened to me, and I took like three years off school because I was just so fed up with it. I'm like, I do not want to deal with any of this anymore. I mean, of course, it's important to function. But if it's coming at a cost of you having an emotional breakdown, it's really time to take a step back and be like, okay, is this working for me?
0: And the topic of this episode was, you know, ADHD while living in an ableist world. And one thing you're now saying that is fascinating is that you internalize ableism so much that when you finally accepted that you had ADHD, then you needed to have ADHD in an ableist way instead of (laughs) like accepting that this is who I am and I'm going to adjust my life and my systems around me to adjust to who I am. You were like, oh, I have ADHD, so I need to adjust myself and my ADHD to fit in those ableist system because the other way around that's unthinkable, right?
1: (laughs) Oh, no. I I remember this conversation I specifically had with my therapist, and I was like, listen, like, I don't want to be too self-compassionate because that's going to get in the way of my achievement, (laughs) which is, like, ridiculous. God forbid that I I don't get an (laughs) A. For the longest time, ADHD defined who I was I kind of defined myself with it but I think one thing that has been really conducive to my healing is to kind of see it as a part of you and and not kind of your whole existence which Mm -hmm. you know you can find community and stuff if you have a very strong relationship to it I think that really helped and it helped with the internalizing ableism to combat that and and be like, okay, like this isn't who you are. You definitely have ADHD and it it affects your life in different ways. But at your core, you are not a disorder. Like you are a person that has this and now you have to navigate this ableist world and try to fit in somehow. And and sometimes I even excelled beyond my neurotypical friends, but at what cost?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was well said. Why don't we take this moment to take a short break and come back for the last section of the podcast. We're talking about ADHD and ableism. And the last section are things that help. Throughout the episode, you've talked about a few things that has been helping, like avoiding social media, finding things that work for you, accepting ADHD as just a part of yourself and not your whole self, fighting, ableism, culture, and getting obviously medication and therapy. But is there other things that have helped?
1: The one important thing that can help in times of isolation or feelings of Defeat is to find community. Mm -hmm. For me, that looks like self-disclosing because how else are you going to know? Because who's going to bring up that conversation? You know, so it's okay to be the first one to say it because then you'll get all all these other people saying, "Okay, like me too." I'll give an example of a conference that I was attending virtually, and there was a disability kind of community meetup Zoom event. And I thought, oh, great, like, this is great, because I was really struggling with my executive functioning at this conference. And this is a, is a huge psychology conference, international, like, thousands of people were attending. And there were only six people in that meetup. And that's another thing that it's like, I didn't know ADHD was a disability until I really looked into it. So many people probably don't know that their mental health issues is a disability because it impairs your functioning. Anyway, so after that, just making these connections, and these people were disabled folks with physical disabilities, mental, chronic health issues. So it, it was really nice to kind of have a very wide range of people that had various forms of disabilities. So yeah, I think finding community is really important, especially if you're in an academic institution or, or any sort of setting that that is taboo or kind of look, like frowned upon. I think that would be especially helpful to find community. You can find community through so many different things. You can find them through Facebook groups. You can find them through Instagram. You can find them through all these different mental health community centers, there's so many different ways to find community. And I think that is one thing that really grounds me in times that I feel just really defeated by my mental health issues. That is the one thing that really keeps me going, because a feeling of connection.
0: So less social media, but when you do it, do it better.
1: Yes. (laughs) Like find your... (laughs) <laughs> yes. So there is a good way to use social media and there is a harmful way to use social media. If you're using social media to find community and to really connect, that can be a really powerful tool. I like don't go on my personal Instagram page. I only use my like other Instagram page, which is specifically for finding community through like art, mental health, all these different things. And I've met amazing people and I've formed incredible friendships throughout these. So yes, you can use social media to your advantage.
0: I'm hearing too that one thing that helps is not being afraid to ask and apply for accommodations.
1: Absolutely. I really hope that the people listening to this will take this seriously and apply for accommodations. I didn't know I was eligible for accommodations until my last semester of university. And my accommodations looked like having 50% extra time, which really helped, or being able to write the exam in a distraction-reduced environment. So I could write my exam in a room that was just like in this cubicle desk. They gave you earpl- like It was amazing. And I could have saved myself so much test anxiety.
0: And so simple, so accessible. It doesn't cost anything to provide this accommodation to people, and it could have saved you so much pain and hardship so yeah apply yes apply for recommendations and apply to become therapists like let's have more people in our field that have autism that have adhd that come from a passive addiction and depression and anxiety let's bring all those people into our field so that we are more equipped. And when we do go to those conferences, there are more voices. There are voices from non-binary people, people of color, fat people, people with disability. All the people. (laughs) We need to hear those voices more in our path to become therapists. We do a little bit. I think it's a field where we're trying to, you know, make some changes, but... Don't be afraid if you're interested. You can do it. We want you.
1: We need it. We need more, you know, like imagine how much more compassion someone can feel for someone else if they've experienced that struggle. And and the one thing you mentioned is that how is being, you know, studying psychology or counseling or how does that help? And I would say it's helped me so much. If it weren't for my psychology textbook, I don't know if I would ever be diagnosed with ADHD. Yeah. It's helped me understand myself. It's helped me understand the world around me. It's helped me understand how to navigate the world around me. And there are so many amazing resources out there. And if you have access to them, it will really help.
0: Anything else that you know has helped you?
1: Having a creative outlet. Mm -hmm. For me, art has always been a part of my life since I was like three or four. And because of school, I got out of touch with it because I'd left no time for that. And I've recently gotten back into it a few years now. And there's something about being able to express yourself in a way that is just for you. I mean, unless you have like an internal perfectionism cop saying like, no, like this has to look this way. Yeah. And that is something that I had to fight against and be like, okay, like, let's just not focus on the outcome of this creative outlet. Let's just focus on the process. So I think having a creative outlet and just really trying to focus on the process and like how it feels and how it makes you feel in the process has been really, really helpful for me. And, you know, they always say like ADHD brains thrive in creative fields. And again, like just because you are a creative person doesn't mean you have to make that your career or you have to monetize it
0: in my episode with ash they talked about getting sober and how art helped and we talked so much about how you can just do art for the process of doing art without having to monetize it and having it to be perfect
1: absolutely and i saw that episode and i was just like i was really struggling at that period of time where i was like i need to set an Etsy shop like i need to do this and that and i saw that i'm like vince I love you so much. Like thank you. <laughs> you do not need to monetize any every creative outlet that you have. Like it could just be for you. Like it could just be because it feels good, because it feels grounding, because it brings you into the present moment. So, yeah, the creative outlet has really helped and just yes, medication, therapy, community,
0: being your own advocate.
1: Yeah, being your own advocate and and learning how to say no.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: yeah like learning how to set boundaries i think is really important and for me because of my adhd and i like to be stimulated i crave like mental stimulation i like to dedicate myself to a million different projects and then i'm just like oh well i can't do any of them because i'm so overwhelmed so (laughs) learning to say no has also been very helpful for me or learning how to set boundaries for yourself so you're not burning out
0: Well, I'm so happy that you did not say no to me when I asked you to participate. (laughs) It was such a pleasure to have you on today. And I actually learned so much from you. So I'm really happy that you came and you were so vulnerable and so open with me.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad. It was a pleasure to be here. And thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I was really looking forward to this. I'm really excited about your podcast and you're doing amazing things. And I'm just really happy to have had the chance to be a part of that somehow. And I hope, you know, folks that we're listening could feel seen or heard and know that there is community and, and support.
0: Yeah, that you're not alone out there. Again, thank you so much for coming. And thank you everyone for listening. Do not hesitate to give me a rating or a comment and to subscribe to this podcast. If you want to stay in contact with me, you can follow the Mental Health Much Instagram account. Until the next episode, please keep talking about mental health to everyone as much as you can. And keep safe.